Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... You can see that this kind of like small acupunctural activation of public space actually becomes a strategic tool to improve streets and spaces in the city for everyone. What can we learn from temporary interventions? On today's episode, we flick through the pages of the new book, Meanwhile City, which explores how good city-making can be aided by a bit of experimentation. We also browse through another recent publication, Monocle's latest edition of The Forecast, to speak to a mayor whose city came up big in our annual Small Cities Index. And we visit one impermanent solution being rolled out in Austria. All that and more ahead over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. If recent world events have taught cities one thing, it's that sometimes a temporary fix can be the perfect option to help the built environment to recover, refocus or revitalise. Social and environmental uncertainty are part of city life, so it's important to be nimble to survive. And sharing such successes can help other urban areas to move forwards too. This is where the new book, Meanwhile City, comes in. It celebrates these successes by offering best practice examples of temporary projects to help build and shape better communities. And I'm pleased to say that I'm now joined by its author, Petra Marco. Petra, great to have you back on The Urbanist, this time to talk about your new book. Can you tell us a bit about the idea behind Meanwhile City? Meanwhile City is an idea that sort of emerged in conversation between Martin Nienczu, who's the founder of Milk, and, and myself, because both of us are interested. Well, Martin is coming from a background as a designer and brand and identity sort of art director. And I'm coming from the background as an architect and placemaker. And we're both interested in communication. And for both of us, communication about place projects or about places actually in order to tell a great story, you have to also take part in shaping a great place. So that's what we are doing and that's what we've been doing from our different positions as architects, communication designers and placemakers. And we wanted to look at how you can actually activate places. And there's been a lot of talk about meanwhile uses and temporary interventions, but we wanted to specifically look at how powerful they can be in changing perception of places, in changing people's behaviour and in effect long-term change. So the message of Meanwhile City is really that temporary projects and meanwhile uses and interventions are not just something you add on or it's not just like a marketing exercise. Actually, they can be very powerful in helping cities to become more resilient. Just tell me, obviously, during the pandemic, this encouraged a lot of temporary use of space because, first of all, restaurants, bars, wanted to, for example, take over space on the street, that there was a need for getting kids out into fresh air and people out into open spaces. Did you see some good practice during this time? It sounds like you're a little bit cautious that some of it was done for, as you say, marketing purposes, maybe a bit of a PR going along rather than thinking about what the real intention was. I think that the pandemic in combination with 
the raised awareness about climate emergency together have been really a wake-up call for many clients and cities. I mean, cities and local authorities have been peddling this issue perhaps longer than the private sector. But I think it is becoming now impossible not to think about the long-term impact of any kind of development project. And so during the pandemic, I think there's been, it sort of like really opened a space to be more experimental and to actually try things that before in the buzz of everything that was happening was impossible. I mean, in London, there were 100 kilometers of temporary cycle paths built during the pandemic, which was twice the speed as it was happening before. And this was also because there was less traffic, but also because suddenly this became a priority or it became really important to think about how people move around, how they can socially distance and in a situation where, where the tube wasn't being used much. So all of these things. Now, you've given some very good examples here in the book. Now, you're originally from Bratislava. You work in Prague. You work in lots of different places. So you've got examples from both of these worlds. But give us a couple of examples of things where you've seen these temporary meanwhile spaces be successful. Uh, there's a really interesting case study from Vienna, which is called Gretel Oase. It's a city-run program which actually encourages residents to create projects in the public space. And it does so by actually people can apply with an idea for either a parklet or an initiative which is focusing on children in public space. And as we know, children in public space have quite often very little agency and, and there are not that many opportunities for them, also combined with the fact that the children can't take part in, in the democratic process before the age of 18. So this initiative gives up to £4,000 for a project idea. So it gives a decent financial support, but also organisational and sort of logistic support. So if people want to create a park on their street through this program, they don't have to worry about taking up parking spaces because it's already part of the program that enables them to do that. And when you look in some other other cities, it's actually really difficult if you start or want to do something, in, especially on the road or on a parking spot. So this is a lovely initiative which shows that the beauty of it is that people actually create the project and they can see it happen very quickly. And then uh, the city sort of gives them the sort of base for the parklets. Then they store it over the winter. And during the pandemic, actually, that initiative has built a lot of momentum to the point where in one of the quarters in Vienna, they want to realize the so-called Super Gretzel. So it's kind of getting inspired by the Barcelona Superblocks initiative, where you can see that this kind of like small acupunctural activation of public space actually becomes a strategic tool to improve streets and spaces in the city for everyone. And how connected is the movement for temporary and meanwhile spaces interlinked with the demands and the needs for a more walkable city, a city connected to more cycling, a more sustainable city? Because many of the projects, you know, they seem to be linked to some kind of nature, to some kind of changing the pace and the movement in our cities, so making you meander more, making you dwell more. Do you think these are all interlinked in these projects? Absolutely. And I think it's about the fact that cities are going to continue to grow and and be denser. So urbanization continues. And we need to have tools to actually 
make cities more livable for everyone and also to welcome people. So some of the examples are also about talking about the subject of migration and what we've seen happening over the last few years. So so cities need to really welcome very different people from different places and and create that space for them to build a relationship to the place. And some of these temporary interventions are very powerful in enabling that process very quickly. Some of them, for example, use very simple construction techniques where volunteers can take part without having particular skills in building things. So you can actually engage people in the process of making. But it's not just about sort of bottom-up and city-led initiatives. What we are trying to show in Meanwhile City is that temporary interventions are incredibly valuable in the process of large-scale regeneration projects, either led by developers or in partnership between the city and the developers. So we're looking at big projects like King's Cross in London, which has taken almost 20 years to build and it's nearly finished in the next couple of years. And at King's Cross, they have really embraced a series of cultural events, activation opportunities, projects right from the beginning during the construction process. And they have learned a great deal along the way. And many other developers are embracing them. And, you know, that there are big differences in, in how successful they embrace them. It depends on how much they see it as an integral part of the project that generates long-term value, as opposed to sort of like a quick marketing exercise to just sell the product. So I think there, there's a distinction that comes with investor-led projects. And some of the private developers and investors are, are becoming incredibly good at actually making the really valuable integral part. I mean, if you talk to sort of you and I, the regeneration developers, they are talking about the meanwhile activation as the sort of phase zero of the project where they're looking at Manchester, Mayfield, a, a huge project, which is a site that had been closed off for over 50 years and was a really problematic space in the city. And they got one million people through the site in the course of one year when they started activating it and doing events there. And it's instead of having a piece of land kind of hoarded up with a fence, you're actually raising awareness about the destination and, and changing the perception about it. And you're, you're kind of engaging different kinds of people. And that's a really interesting aspect. So it goes across sort of from bottom up to top down. And I think that's a nice story about city making. Well, Petra, it's a beautiful and encouraging book for everyone who wants to help make a truly inclusive city wherever they are. Thank you again for joining us today. And for those listeners who would like to get their hands on a copy, well, Petra's book, Meanwhile City, is available now at selected bookshops or from the website meanwhile.city. Petra was just telling us about an exciting Meanwhile initiative out of Vienna that's changing the streetscape for those in the Austrian capital. We wanted to find out a bit more about these parklets popping up in the streets of Vienna, so we decided to dispatch our man in the city, Alexei Koroliov, to investigate. Let's listen in. A frequently quoted study from 2020 describes Vienna as the world's most verdant metropolis. But of course, vegetation is distributed unevenly across the city, and large parts of the inner districts are a world of brick and stone. To reduce the imbalance, the City Council has teamed up with an NGO called Locale Agenda 21. 
Sabrina Halkic is the managing director. So uh, we started 2015 with the project Gretzlas in Vienna and the citizens came up with this idea and because the concept is so easy, um, it kind of developed to the projects that that was like mostly done by the citizens. So since a few years, uh, we have this specific focal point on uh, green parklets. Um, the idea is to build public uh, living spaces um, in the street on space that is actually not uh, there for uh, citizens but for cars. There are now 86 Kretzel Oasen or district oases across Vienna. Most of them look like the one where I meet Sabrina. Wooden structures the size of a parking space bedecked with plants and flowers. So when the initiatives apply, they also have to say where they want to build it. The city of Vienna uh, supports us very well in this project. There is the possibility to actually put a parklet in front of the house where you live, in front of um, an organization like an NGO or something, or in front of the organization where you work. So it's limited to these spaces, so they will check if that's the case. And then also we have a jury that decides on what projects to pick. And on the jury, there's also people from the city of Vienna who can tell us, for example, here there won't be any, I don't know, works of the city of Vienna, so it's fine to use this parking space for the whole summer in order to put the Gretzlase. One of the more recent oases is in front of Beata Mitrovic's real estate office in the 7th district. We don't have many parks in the 7th district, so we thought um, in front of our office it would be nice to have something, something green, something more relaxing than cars parking. We had a professional carpenter who helped us um, yeah, for the construction and he, did, he organized the wood and the painting and so on. We have invested in plants, of course, and mostly we invested in time because you have to uh, maintain the, the Kretzel Oase, you have to water the plants, and we have very hot summers in Vienna. It comes back from reactions. Absolutely. Yes. yes, we have a lot of positive reactions from, from the people who live in 7th District and who, who pass by, and there's like, oh, this is so beautiful, and, uh, and we invite people to sit down. We put cushions every day, and now we put some, some lights for, for the evening, for Christmas, and to create a nice atmosphere, even though it's not so colorful anymore. So we create it with comfy, with um, hygge-ly <laughs> atmosphere. In addition to providing some much-needed greenery, the Gretzeloasen serve a deeper purpose too. A last word from Sabrina Halkic. We actually look at the social criteria when choosing the parklets or the district. Here, for example, 7th District doesn't have any green space. It's very dense. So it is one of the districts where we say, OK, we want to have a lot of Kretzloasen. Um, but also social criteria, for example, in 5th District, in front of Neuner House, which is an organization that works with people who don't have a home. So we let them uh, build the Kretzloasen in front of them because we want people who usually just have to hide in public space to have a space where they can sit and be there. Mm. Or we have one project which is really nice, Pepper Assets, for kids, uh, especially girls with migration background, who are not seen uh, in public space because they have to be at home wearing headscarves. There they can sit outside and like the whole public space changes. So um, this is also what we look for because we're in this nice position to have so many <laughs> applications. Yeah. <laughs> to actually also be able to kind of see what is important from our point of view. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov.
Now, to end this week's programme, we changed tack slightly to take a peek inside the latest issue of The Forecast, as among the pages, we revealed the winners in our annual Small Cities Index. One of the cities to feature in this year's index is Bozeman in the US state of Montana. It has a population of around 54,000 people and its quality of life is anchored in its proximity to the great outdoors. It's fringed by mountain ranges and Yellowstone National Park is just a two-hour drive away. Monocle's Thomas Lewis spoke to Bozeman's mayor, Cindy Andrus, about the city's recent growth, which was particularly marked during the pandemic, and how that is changing her city. One of the great things about a growing community is that it does open up some opportunities, especially around diversity. And so you begin to see people with new and interesting ideas. You begin to see new culture come into your community. And you begin to see this community becoming more of a, a bit more of a melting pot, which you know creates a lot of opportunity, brings new ideas. And it also, for us, we have really been working on this inclusion and diversity, and it helps us to lift that up and really work on making everyone feel welcome here, and no matter what their race or identity or their life circumstance. And that's something that's really exciting and an opportunity that we see and are really grasping onto. And we are very focused on infill and density. And part of that is because of the beautiful area that we live in. We are also now doing a sensitive land study with many partners from around the region to think about the wildlife habitat that lives within our region. And so that is another reason why we are really, why we have been and continue to think about as we grow, how do we do infill and density, but how do we do that in a way that really is complementary to the community that is here? What are the characteristics that we want to see in that? A lot of um, mixed use where you have housing and retail, especially in a community like Bozeman where our core is already so developed. And so um, when we do infill in that area, what is it that we really need? And then as we think about as we grow, what do we need? Not everything can happen in your downtown. So how do you have little commercial nodes where people are able to do what they need to do every day? Being sensitive to our climate plan, which so we're not driving long distances, but actually developing walkable neighborhoods where people feel like they can get to know each other and be a part of that community as well as the bigger community. So I think we're, I like to think we are really progressive in that area in terms of how we're looking to develop our community. Our tools for developing our community in a way that we need, which is more affordable housing, and that's not something new. I mean, a lot of places around the country are struggling with this as well, but our tools are really limited. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to do the best we can around design and thinking about how do we do that infill as best we can? How do we create that density that gives us more multifamily units and make it so that developers want to do it? So that involves incentivizing them to make these kinds of changes. And that's not easy. We're continuing to look at our codes and our um, all of those barriers to entry, especially around housing, but I think in general to make it so that it's easy for people to be able to come here and develop and build and start new businesses, but at the same time asking them to do it responsibly and to help us understand the impact that they have when they do that to the community. You know what I mean? So you're coming, you're building more houses, so... You know, it's great to have more people. It's exciting to have them come. But at the same time, are you building affordable units so that people can actually 
you know, leaving them people that maybe live here can move up so the single family can move up or the new couple can move up to a bigger home. Are you doing your part to help us create an affordable community and that creates a more diverse community? And that's what we're really focused on. And in terms of the the city's economy, Mm -hmm. maybe you could describe for us the sort of main pillars of that. Bozeman in particular, I think, has been built on a tourism economy because we're so close to Yellowstone National Park. And that still is the case. We have a lot of tourists that come through here every year. But we have a university that is just tremendous and they have a huge research department so the photonics and bioscience are something that's really taking off in our community and that is where we continue to focus some of our efforts in economic development they're clean businesses so to speak and some of the companies that are here are known you know nationally so having a partnership with the university is really important and is really helping us to think about things in addition to tourism we will always have a tourism economy here because of our proximity to Yellowstone National Park but I think that research component of the university is also helping us to think about economic development maybe in a different way well, I was speaking to the publisher of the newspaper yesterday, The Chronicle, oh, okay. and uh, the really eye-catching yellow buses were sort of uh-huh. passing by. And I wondered, you know, how big a part does sort of public transport? I've heard that lots of people appear to bike, especially mm-hmm. in a commuting context in the city itself. Yeah. What's the kind of strategy there and why, say, having a good public transport network is important, do you think? For well, um, as we continue to grow, being a more multimodal community again, helps with that diversity. Not everybody drives a car, nor does everybody want to drive a car. We have a transfer system. It's called Streamline. It's primarily federally funded, or the money came from the federal government, so it's you don't pay to ride it. Um, so it's free, and it's limited in where it can go just because of the amount of money that it's able to that we're able to provide and and HRDC, the Human Resource Development Council, can put in to expand those routes, but we continue to work on doing that, as well as expanding our bike lanes and trying to watch and really grow the areas where people can bike. We have, as I mentioned earlier, we have a climate plan, and we're really focused on trying to get rid of our carbon emissions and just like everybody else, right? And so some of that is really driving this idea of becoming a more multimodal community and trying to get folks to walk and ride bikes and take buses as opposed to driving in their cars. That said, we live in Montana. Things are really far apart here and we're never, uh, well, I shouldn't say never, but it'll be a while before we're maybe not ever using cars. It's a changing of a habit that's really hard. And, you know, myself, I mean, it's, I drive a lot of places. I try to be more conscious about when I'm doing that. But because of the diversity, our state is so large for us to go to meetings or one place to another, we need a car. And I think that mentality just kind of carries over into the community as well. But we are really focused on trying to become a more multimodal community and it's really helpful again the university students lots of students lots of bicycles lots of scooters so and thinking in our planning and development how to do more you know when we think about parking uh, right now we're having lots of conversation about parking and how much do we need and who should pay for it and where should it be and you know as you think forward how much parking do we need how much You know, do we need to do more ride sharing? Will there be more electric cars? Lots of questions around transportation, but certainly something we're trying to address head on and figure out some solutions to. 
maybe to go to your own career as mayor, mm -hmm. one thing that people keep talking about is the idea of community here, that, you know, if you own a little coffee hut somewhere, you're going to see the person who owns the music venue kind of yeah. at a restaurant or mm -hmm. somewhere else. Being the mayor of a, of a smaller city, what are the sort of, you know, advantages, I suppose, of being in somewhere where the idea of community is very strong and very important to a lot of people? Does that mean that you're held to account in a more, you know, kind of direct way? Or does that mean that actually the responsibility you feel is just that much more keen because you're that much closer to your constituents, I suppose? Well, I think both of those are true. I mean, I definitely feel accountable, and I don't know if that's because I live in a small community or that's just my, the way I perceive public service is that accountability piece. It's true that in a small community, you are much closer to your constituents. They see you, and you see them in the grocery store. You see them at markets. You see them at, you know, having a cocktail. You see them downtown. So you have that interaction, and I think that's really great. I love that about a small community. I've never been mayor in another place, so I, I don't have that experience, but I think there's a real advantage to that. People can call me. I mean, as you can see, we are meeting in an office that is not at City Hall. I don't have an office at City Hall. Our form of government is a little different in that regard. We have a city manager. It's not like a big city where the mayor has a big office in the City Hall and all these people work for them. That's not our form of government. And I, frankly, like the form of government we have with a city manager, and a, we call it a strong city manager. Some places call it a weak mayor, but because you have strong mayor, weak mayor forms of government, mm. but I call it a strong city manager. For a long time, I was a park ranger in Yellowstone National Park, and I was a interpretive naturalist, so gave programs. I was also an EMT. I worked uh, a little while in Alaska in the same regard. I worked in Helena as a kind of an aide up in the legislature, so I was, you know, working in that public service realm, you know, at a state level. My husband was also a representative in the state house. And it was at that time that I became very interested in process. And I would go to Helena and watch how they sort of made the sausage at the Capitol. And I think that that's something I really enjoy. And I think I excel at being able to make sure that our procedures are transparent and everyone, ha the public has an opportunity to participate. And I enjoy that process part. I think good government needs process people and issue people. And when you have that combination, you have good government. And mm. we have that on our commission. And I think that's a really important piece. So I've always really enjoyed public service and giving back to my community. I, I grew up in a in Minnesota in a family that wasn't political really by any means but did public service work did volunteer kinds of things and I just continue to you know want to do that as I continue to grow into my career you know being a mayor was not like I wanted to check it off it was never on my to-do list it just kind of happened and it happened as I was watching my husband at the legislature and thinking about wow I think it would be great to do this at a local level and I really do like the local level idea here because it's you can see, you can drive around town and you can go, oh, that was a good idea. That was a really bad idea. Why did we do that? There's a good, you know, and you can see the changes. And when you work at the state house, it's much harder because you're making decisions for the whole entire state. Mm. 
But when you're working in local government, you know, you can just look around and see the changes. Talk to people every day. You know, even if they're upset or they don't like it, there's a reward in the ability to be able to talk and listen to those people and hear them in a way that I don't think you can do that maybe at higher levels of government. Mm. So I'm, I really like the local government. It really appeals to me. And mm. I've been doing this work since 2010. So I continue to enjoy it, I mm. guess. It's not a private business where we just, you know, five of us sit down every Tuesday night and say, okay, here's how we're going to develop our city. I mean, that's not the way it works, and it shouldn't work that way. And it takes a long time because you want that public input. Now, people may assume that when you have a difference of opinion that they're not being heard. And that's not the case. But I can understand how people feel that way. And this especially happens in development when you have something that's happening and people are reacting to it and they either want it or they don't want it. And for whatever reason, the commission makes a decision that is contrary to what they want. It's not because we haven't heard what they want. It's because, in my view, we have a lot of other information that we are using to make that decision that they just may not know or understand or have taken the time to really look into. Mm. And that, you know, causes conflict, but it's important. It's Mm. important to hear all those points of view. That was Cindy Andrus, mayor of the city of Bozeman, speaking to Monocle's Thomas Lewis. And you can read about all of the cities featured in this year's Small Cities Index by picking up a copy of the latest issue of The Forecast, which is available now from monocle.com forward slash shop, or, of course, from a good bookshop or newsstand near you. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rebello and David Stevens, And David also edited the show. Now, to play you out this week, well, here's Midlake with Meanwhile. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Mm-hmm.